my name is Sarah Connolly and today I'm talking to Dr Rachel Alderud who's the Senior Lecturer in Transport at the University of Westminster. Now you may have come across her if you uh, are interested in how to get more people cycling in the UK because she's in the media quite a lot, she's on the radio and she's got this amazing project called the Nearmiss Project. I'm fascinated by her work so hello Rachel. Thanks Sarah, hi. <laughs> um, Rachel can you describe in a nutshell what you do? Oh, um, I mean, I guess I do. I mean, I do quite a bit of stuff, but I do um, a lot of research on cycling in a range of ways. I use a lot of different methods, but cycling is really my research passion. I also uh, teach transport planning as well. I lead an MSc in transport planning. Wow. And you've got quite a lot of strings to your bow. I mean, I know you've been involved in the London cycling campaign and you've got various projects going on. I mean, the one I was quite interested in is the Near Miss Project, which is... Well, I just, well, you describe it because I just, I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, the Near Miss project um, really got going just over a year ago and it looks at cycling near misses, but kind of at the heart of it, I wanted to do this one day diary and get people to record cycling trips and any near miss type incidents they experienced over the course of one day. Mm -hmm. And then the idea was to derive a rate, a near miss rate that you could compare with injury rates, for example, um, because it seems to me that near misses, and well, we know now from the research uh, as well, that near misses are really very common and they can have quite a substantial impact on people, but there's very little work done on them. You know, we didn't, we don't know how often they happen and so on. So I really wanted to find out about near misses, both for injury prevention purposes, but also because of the cycling experience angle, that these things that happen potentially every day could have quite a substantial effect on people and how people feel about cycling. Yeah, I mean, that's why I stopped riding to work when I was working in office was because I just couldn't cope with the, um, you know, on a happy day, you go in with a smile on your face. And on an unhappy yeah. day, you go in with like your adrenaline rate, like through the roof and start and being grumpy all day. And it's just like, I'll just walk and read my book instead. <laughs> I know. And that kind of those those descriptions of people's experiences, I mean, because it was a, an online survey. So a lot of the data was quantitative, but we also got really um, intense descriptions of people's experiences and just had the, you know, the visceral nature of many of these things, people um, being cut up, being close past or being driven at and so on, you know, really reading those descriptions was often quite chilling. And, you know, cycling should be a wonderful, pleasurable experience, but too often on our roads, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of obviously this has only been going for a year has it changed the way you, you know has it changed your thoughts on how we get more people cycling because that's basically what a lot of your work's about isn't it yeah yeah um it is and i well i hope i hope it has started to make a difference i mean it's started to for me i feel like i understand better some of the stuff around risk because you know we often have these debates in cycling that um well cycling is objectively you know it's not as safe as it should be but it's objectively very safe you're very very unlikely not to come home alive you know and mm. in the injury the, the injury rates are higher than they are in the netherlands but still you know people might expect a slight injury once every 20 years or something like that so injury is isn't that common even in the UK on the other hand a lot of people feel that cycling is terrifying mm -hmm. and they feel it's unsafe so for me near misses are one of the sort of missing links in between that it's sort of about experienced risk it's not just a perception it's something that people experience and it's something that can be quite off-putting so I feel like I understand risk better and also I think it's started to have an impact in policy as well that um, transport authorities are starting to get quite interested in this and think about it in terms of you know what locations on our network are 
are generating near misses because partly you can see it as um, an early warning that mm-hmm. you might get injuries somewhere. And I, I really think that we're very reactive in road safety. You know, we if, if we're lucky, if someone is injured or, or dies, <clears throat> we might make changes to a junction. But we, we should be looking at those junctions, I believe, in advance and sort of saying, well, look, yeah. we think somebody will be injured here. Let's do something about it before they are injured. So um, there's, for example, police services are starting to collect more data on near misses and not just use it for enforcement against individuals but also to think about enforcement campaigns and to give to their transport planning colleagues to do something you know to look at locations that are problematic so I think it is starting to change practice a little bit and starting to make people think a bit more about near misses. I think it's quite interesting I mean I remember having conversations with my friends on Twitter whereas there's like a lot of arguments about well why don't women cycle more and they come up with oh well women are more risk averse as if it's a bad thing (laughs) yes and for me and my friends it's like well no actually I feel like if I'm making a if you know if I've kind of I'm you know I I used to do a lot of evidence-based practice and if I like Mm. if I if I'm making an evidence-based decision that actually you know this is dangerous and this is what's happened to my friends and this is the downsides and I don't think that that risk assessment is a bad thing you know everywhere I've worked that's a positive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and you know how people feel the sort of the comfort level of cycling as well is an important part of that you know you can't just explain it away and say oh well you might be feeling uncomfortable and scared but you're very unlikely to be hit you know if that is an uncomfortable and scary experience that's important for people and people take that into account and I think we need to acknowledge that yeah 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 yes I, and I feel like that it's not often it's kind of there's a you know I mean what is it it's like rule four or something it's just harden the fuck up get on with it and (laughs) and and I kind of feel well that's great but you know I add it into my daily life and it's very very interesting thinking about it from a policy perspective as well because I was reading I think I was reading one of your papers where you're talking about or blogs when you're talking about cost-benefit analysis and people Mm. taking into account when someone dies but not taking into account the fact that people don't do it in case they die (laughs) Yes. And we're just missing out so much. I mean, the benefits, you know, some of the the colleagues that I work with do stuff around health benefits and so on of cycling. And the benefits are so massive. And particularly for those groups that aren't cycling. I mean, in a sense... Um, young men are the people who least need to cycle they tend to have more of the transport options mm. you know they tend to um, be less at risk um, because they you know they're young they're unlikely to to be about to experience serious health conditions but the people we really need to get cycling are often the older people and older women in particular people who often don't have access to cars people who um, you know are, are at relatively high risk of health problems so you know the very people who benefit most from it in this country are least likely to cycle. Yeah, I think that's why I really loved your work. I think when I, I well, I first came across your work when my friend Fergal Mackay in, introduced me to your papers. But I think one of the things I loved most was the fact that you were looking at cycling from a point of view from equity, you know, children, older people, women, disabled mm. people, black and minority ethnic communities, people from, you know, less well-off neighbourhoods. Yes. And that was fascinating because that's always bothered me that a lot of cycling stuff seems to be, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter who we get cycling, just as long as it's numbers. Yes, yes. And that's kind of self-defeating in a sense as well, because if you build stuff that, you know, the young, the fit, the able-bodied and so on can just about cope with, then, you know, maybe you'll get more of those people. But most people are not like that. And (laughs) even most young men are not like that. Mm. And really, you'll just completely limit yourself. I mean, if you, where I live, because I live in, um, I live in Hackney, and we've, you know, in terms of the UK, we're doing pretty well, but still cycling is concentrated, cycling to work is concentrated among um, young men, um, relatively affluent 
um, group, you know, social backgrounds and so mm -hmm. on. And it's like you've got as probably as many of those people cycling as you're going to get, you know, but what yeah. about the rest? That's who we need to focus on. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I was really interested in your idea that it, what I hadn't realised was that a lot of cycling policy, you said um, the Department for Transport and Sport England were taking a kind of trip, trickle down approach that if you get more young men cycling, then naturally more Everyone women yeah <laughs> i know and it's incredible and that paper the dft um the dft sport england report that i'm referring to which has lots of really interesting stuff in but it does actually say that getting more men to cycle to work will increase gender equity and one of my co-authors referred it back to me before he submitted a paper publication she said are you right are you sure that's right is that a typo <laughs> and i went back and checked the original paper and no that's what they actually said and the assumption was that it would just start to level up and i think um really i'd turn that around and say you know we really need to build for the underrepresented um, groups we need to focus on those people who are actually telling us that they're you know that they're particularly concerned about safety issues that they're you know they don't they're also concerned often mm -hmm. about um, personal safety and social safety as well so you know where do you you don't build routes through um, sort of narrow passageways through yeah, the states yeah. and that kind of thing so you know but, but these things are often not listened to and when you look at um, the way in which cyclists have been represented traditionally and um, I've got there's someone called Kevin Hickman who does uh, work on inclusive cycling who's written a very really interesting paper on how um, disabled cyclists are represented or rather not represented because cyclists are, you know tend to be represented as able-bodied they tend to often be represented as young to middle-aged men and so on and it, in a sense those images also help to perpetuate that's who often planners are thinking about they're yeah. thinking about that guy um, on a road bike he's wearing sporty clothing he's got a helmet on he's leaning forward he's in the bus lane you know mm -hmm. he's okay <laughs> that's that's who we're building for and you know if you actually try and imagine um you know a, a grandmother and a, a, a little boy cycling in that place you just can't imagine it and it's just it's trying to break out of that and trying to imagine the cycling that we could have yeah yeah I mean I was thinking about uh, you know a friend who, who uses tricycle for example mm. and and uh, you know and another you know woman who used to cycle around my neighborhood who took her kids in a trike and and that's like seems that's seen as really really bizarre and kind yeah. of kind of weird and oh my god what are you doing you're taking up far too much space yes yes <laughs> and and those are exactly the kind of uh, people and the kind of you know the diversity of cycling that we need to get but it's just you know it's still often absent from the planners are not thinking of those kinds of things disabled cycling is just seen as um really traditionally really marginal within transport within disability within cycling it's yeah yeah it, yeah yeah, we just and but but yet the benefits are so massive. For I mean, I remember interviewing people in um, Cambridge. So I did the Cycling Cultures Project. That was kind of my a bit of my my way into this really, where I did a lot of interviews with people um, who cycled. And I um, particularly in Cambridge, which has and Cambridge has relatively gender equal cycling. It has a lot of older people cycling, a lot of disabled people. Um, and I spoke to quite a few people in Cambridge because of that, who were from a variety of demographics and people who, for example, couldn't have easily walked to the shop and who would say you know if I didn't have my tricycle I might be housebound because literally you know I cannot walk I don't yeah. have a car I can't use public transport and the tricycle is how I get about and just those those benefits and if we can get those people cycling that for me is really transformational. Yeah what, what, what do you think is special about Cambridge I mean is it is it because it's flat is it because <laughs> it's the university is it I mean, why? Why? Because that's the thing that fascinates me is people say, oh, it can't be done. We can't certainly mm. have the Netherlands. But there are places in Britain. I mean, York has a really strong cycling culture, too. And I just wonder, what is it about those places, do you think? 
I mean, it's I, I did when I was looking at um, the Cycling Cultures Project was partly founded on sort of thinking, well, we have these places where cycling is high. What can we learn from them? Um, and one of the things I guess that I did learn from them was that you can't necessarily, you know, the, the things that make cycling high in Cambridge are not necessarily things that you can transfer elsewhere. Cambridge yeah. has its own specific culture. It has a history, for example, of uh, undergraduates not being allowed to bring cars up. It's got a, you know, the specific city centre and so on. So I don't think you can necessarily take Cambridge and put it elsewhere. But Cambridge does really clearly show, as you say, that, you know, it, it can be done. There's nothing inherent to the English that means that so you know mm. it's not possible to get high levels of cycling so i think um and i think they um you can also see ex good examples from across the country i mean in bristol for example which you know as you Where know I is not live. flat and yes. bristol, <laughs> yeah. yeah bristol has, certainly has hills and bristol has um doubled its level of cycling to work between 2001 and 2011 so also you know there's 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 examples in in different circumstances as well i mean so cambridge i guess i guess one of the things also i learned from cycling cultures was that there was still it was still often a struggle in even in those places where cycling's high because we have in this country we have such a problematic attitude to cycling cycling is still still difficult often even in in, in those contexts you know it's still um this, the media is still often quite hostile to cycling and so on um, and there's still scope for further growth one of the exciting things about cambridge is that they're doing they're putting in place some you know the infrastructure in cambridge traditionally um is very patchy and one of the things i think that's supported cycling there has been that um, often pavement cycling is allowed which is not right. you know it's not a great thing but it has meant that people will cycle with children um, and you know people they don't have to cycle on the road one of the great things that Cambridge is now doing is actually creating you know higher quality Dutch and Danish style tracks so which is good for pedestrians and good for cyclists and um, they've seen with some of the infrastructure they've put in already they've seen cycling increase further so even where you've got cycling at 33% mode share it can still go up further if you improve things so that's also really positive yeah yeah I, I mean that's that is that is exciting I mean, because I think it's I mean you know as someone who lives in Bristol I have strong feelings about us being the cycling city for example because yeah. you know we're in a situation where you know they, they got a whole load of new bike paths put in and now they're putting bus routes over the top of them mm. you know and, and there and there's all sorts of things like that that just mean I wouldn't dream of cycling in Bristol but then maybe I would you know maybe something would happen that mean that actually I change my mind and start riding in the city again Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Bristol is, is a good example of having increased cycling. There's obviously still a long way to go as there mm. is in as there is in London. I mean, um, I, yeah, I was up in Bristol recently for a Viva and um, cycling along Gloucester Road, which was not exactly <laughs> <laughs> Fun yeah. times. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was interested in a lot of this stuff. There's so many things that are so fascinating about your work, but you talk about the, the, the interactions between the infrastructure, the social pressures, the cultural pressures. And I was wondering, is that, I mean, that's, you, you come from sociology, which is a really interesting thing to me to see someone in transport. <laughs> does that, does that impact on your work? Can you tell us a little bit more about those interactions from a sociological perspective? Yeah, I, I can. And it just just on the subject of coming from sociology, it has it has been a really interesting journey. I've seen sort of both, you know, two completely different academic cultures, sociology <laughs> and transport. And I think I can see the positive and the less positive side of both. And one of the things that I like about transport is that it is quite interdisciplinary and that there'll yeah. be people, I'll be interacting with people who are mathematical modelers, for, for instance, or, you know, people who are from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, but yeah, I really, I mean, one of the things that I'm really... Um, 
passionate about is having that understanding of the relationship between culture and infrastructure because you know often it's assumed that if something is seen as a cultural problem it has to have a cultural solution and you know you, we mm. bracket things off and we think okay it's an engineering problem let's fix that or it's a it's a behavioral problem let's fix behavior but they're all so related and I really like thinking about the streets as this sort of public space where people interact in particular ways and many of the ways in which we interact in in the space that is the roads are really problematic but it's related to the infrastructure it's related to the the cultural and policy context as well and I guess mm. one one example um, would be in terms of building good quality cycle infrastructure which I you know I I hope I think helps to create the impression that cyclists matter and that cyclists are important because they have something good provided for them because we have this long history in this country as I'm sure you're also aware of building these facilities that um, facilities as we call them that that you know just look like okay we put some paint on the road and then it disappears yeah, <laughs> yeah just yeah, just yeah. when it gets difficult let's write end and then yeah. you know, or, the or will disappear yeah or sharing with a bus lane you know bus and cycle yeah. lane which is like as you say on the Gloucester Road which is anyway full of cars um, yes. parks on the side of the road anyway it's just ah yeah exactly it's like cyclists don't need any space they don't need any protection they'll just get out of the way when it, when it ever becomes difficult mm. and that that's so much infrastructure for supposedly for cycling sends that message and sort of says cyclists are not important they're residual they're in your way and I think if we start creating something better that starts to send a signal that actually cyclists are worth spending money on they do deserve their own space they do deserve priority where you know um at, at junctions and so on and i think that helps to start changing cultures and that i think is particularly important for underrepresented groups as well because some of the um work that i did in um cambridge and those those other um, places for cycling cultures sort of found that cy so cycling traditionally has this sort of poverty stigma that we see it as something people only do because they can't afford a car mm. and that's sort of developed in the post-war period when you know there's a rush to the car and so on and it still affects people but it affects people differently so in Cambridge when I was doing research there you know people middle class people people with money they didn't feel affected by a poverty stigma no one was going to think that they were poor but when I spoke to people who were on lower incomes or self-employed it did affect them you know because they were they were worried that they could be seen as being poor not making mm. enough money and so on um, so if you create good cycle infrastructure you create the impression that cycling is for everyone or is for valued people you know people are valued who cycle that really helps with the poverty stigma and I think um, from a sociological perspective that could have a disproportionate impact on those lower income people because they're the people who are put off by this um, you know poverty stigma attached to cycling or another example if people are put off cycling because they think it's something that you have to be super fit and sporty mm. to do um, then creating infrastructure where you don't have to do that you're not constantly battling with buses and taxis and so on that can help with that again and that can help create an image of cycling that's more diverse and that you know people if you're a bit lazy and fat you know <laughs> yeah. you can still participate in it you don't have to be some super fit um, paragon so I think if we start to change the infrastructure and make the infrastructure more welcoming and also um, you know more attractive um, then then we can help deal with some of those sort of cultural problems what yeah. are seen as cultural problems yeah yeah I mean I mean to me it's like things like people like Jeremy Clarkson or I mean it's a bit like the anti-vaccination movement 10 years ago where you still have you know the BBC in the interest of balance will get someone to talk about how you know we'll talk from the anti-vax side for example <laughs> and I kind of feel like the media seems to be the cyclists do seem to be this 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 target you're allowed to punch at and I guess if you were like a young black man for example who's already got the media 
throwing punches at them. I can see how that might, you know, your, 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 your stigmas might add up. Do you know what I mean? Like, great. You know, it's bad enough already. Why do I want to be on a bike or a woman thinking it's bad enough already, you know, being catcalled and feeling a bit unsafe. Why would I want to do it on the bike where someone's going to ride past, you know, drive past and slap me on the ass, you know? Yeah. I do think there is some kind of, you know, additive or multiplicative effect of, you know, how much crap do you want to put up with in your Mm. day? And if cycling sort of multiplies that, and if you're already, you know, being, being discriminated against or being harassed and then from cycling you you'll then get additional harassment additional problems then yeah I can see that's then additional additionally off-putting I do sort of wonder whether having you know a more egalitarian society in general is sort of more conducive to cycling and walking that uh, you know that 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 the people interact in a more equal way to start off with maybe helps with those things too yeah you had a great acronym for must get in front drivers oh mgif it's not mine (laughs) (laughs) but that that was fascinating i mean i've never driven so i've like it's like it's like one of those things that i can't even imagine but then i know what i'm like getting on the train or something or you know getting to the shortest (laughs) queue in the checkout and stuff like that is it i guess the cultural the really difficult thing about cultural change is is that you want to culturally change everyone because mm. you know it's not just me getting on my bike it's it's also someone over there who's not going to drive at me or or, or kind of pass yes. me too closely and i mean do you have any insight into how we can do that yeah it's it is it is challenging and i think we've got in this country we do have this problem where there is this deep-seated hostility towards cyclists often and who are seen as you know even more marginalized than pedestrians in a sense because pedestrians have pavement space pedestrians you know Mm. are are harassed on the roads but have pavement space whereas cyclists are sort of often not seen as belonging anywhere you know they're not meant to be on the pavement and if they're on the road you know the drivers think that they're getting in their way so it's kind of we we we're always battling with that and also the fact that the the media often as you as you mentioned often play quite a negative role um politicians often are not terribly helpful either i was struck by i've been struck by debates in parliament and in the lords that people you know they're some of the same stereotypes in the media you'll see there um the greater um london assembly interestingly is um actually when i was when i've been there to give evidence that the level of debate there is noticeably higher <laughs> than it often is in those national yeah. forums and i think that the london assembly because of the context in london are more yeah. clued up on stuff so we have got you know an awful lot of um there's an awful lot of um problems a lot of misconceptions bias and sort of anti-cyclist feeling and I don't you know it would be nice to think that as cycling increases you know drivers become generally better behaved and more welcoming and I think in London I can't I don't think there's a great deal of evidence that safety in numbers effect is happening yet so mm. I think there may be a threshold and maybe we're not we're not there yet so in the meantime um, I mean I hopefully you know positive infrastructural change will help will raise the um, the status of cyclists and also um, around sort of enforcement and policy and just I guess constantly keeping an eye out for stuff that's going to be problematic so one example could be the um, the stickers in London um, that Transport for London rolled out some while back which um, for large vehicles to stick on the back saying cyclists stay back which is just really <laughs> problematic isn't it because it, it just sends that message cyclists yeah. should always be behind you should yeah, not yeah, yeah. be in front if you're a cyclist and that things like that and really shouldn't happen and especially on big 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 vehicles which shouldn't be in London anyway I mean I've got, you know, I, I grew up in London. It's like, I, you know, why why is there a need for a big vehicle to be driving through central London during the daytime? You know what I mean? It's like, it's, or, or, or in the rush hour, it's, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, you want to kind of 
a, a sticker to go giant vehicle go round the M25 <laughs> you know or giant vehicle yeah. deliver at a sensible time <laughs> oh yeah and it's just yeah it's just just diverting the responsibility to 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 the cyclist and to the pedestrian and sort of saying you know you should you should wait behind you should not be yeah you you should be you should be out of the way and it's so things like that which just kind of reinforce the marginalization of cycling and there's so many examples even that the places where I visited for the cycling cultures research even though those are places with relatively high levels of cycling you'd see things like for example I remember in an area of Hull seeing signs everywhere going you know anti-social cycling you will be fined mm. and it just sends a message out that cyclists are going to be punished and that you know nothing about the kind of the, the things that drivers might have been doing in that area and it just like cyclist dismount signs which often don't have any legal force but sort of carry the message that cyclists should be getting off and then if cyclists don't dismount you know they're, they're seen as breaking the rule even though there's not necessarily any law you know any yeah. legal reason to dismount so there's I think um, a constant effort on behalf of policymakers and practitioners to ensure that things don't you know contribute to further stigmatizing and stereotyping cyclists um, and also probably some targeted enforcement um, is, is useful too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't help. I guess, you know, Nigel Lawson saying that cycleways have done more damage to London than almost anything since the Blitz. And it's like, yeah, you know, like, like for example, rampaging landlords. <laughs> or, you know, that's done a bit of, that's done a lot of damage to London. Pollution, that's that's done a fair bit of, it's like, I couldn't, you know, you read that and you think, what kind of world are you living in where the worst thing that happens to you is you know, is that is that you now it now takes you a couple of minutes longer to drive down the embankment or something. You know what I mean? But I think I think that people realise that, that that people see that and think, how out of touch is he? It's like mm. the comments from people like Alan Sugar about now now it takes me an hour and a half to get from um, you know um, Temple to Tower Hill or whatever. <laughs> Most people <laughs> are going to look at that and think, what on earth are you do? You know, you'd walk there quicker. Why aren't you getting the tube or walking? And yeah. it's it's interesting that in you have I think one thing that's been quite helpful in London is that you have started to see it i think that there's been a big shift away from the car towards public transport in particular to a lesser extent cycling mm. and walking and i think you've maybe in in central london certainly people most people don't feel that people have a right to drive quickly yeah. through central london yeah. so i think i think that's been quite positive for cycling because it's sort of um it's it sort of attacked the, this assumption that drivers should always be able to get somewhere as quickly as possible because patently in central London that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, and also that you know that, that park that drivers shouldn't have free parking or whatever is as a London you know as a, as a as a born Londoner that's like well what well, we've all got to pay for our transport what are you talking about crazy person you know we, I think we'd probably look askance on people who did drive just because you're thinking well why would you sit in a car going up to central London when you can go on the train or you can go on the tube for you know get there in fifteen minutes it, it, it's an odd it's a kind of odd thing. But I, I, do you think from a sociological perspective that kind of the completely hapstand arguments like Nigel Lawson, like your Jeremy Clarkson's actually do the cause good in the long run by being so crazy? <laughs> well, I did wonder about that when I was reading. It was, a, yeah, it was a standard article where it was, it did have people sort of complaining about the fact that they were sat getting, you know, spending an hour and a half getting to their business meetings mm. to, you know, going a mile in central London. And I think <laughs> that does really illustrate that, um, you know what what planet are those people on actually most you know that's not how most Londoners live yeah. and that's not how most Londoners would expect to travel so yeah it did it did make <laughs> it did, did make the other side look quite sensible 
<laughs> which I think is quite useful because you mentioned somewhere else that there's the stigma of cyclists as, you know, mad eco-warriors or mammal or obnoxious mammals. And I've got to admit that that is a little bit of, um, you know, I, I talk about mammals quite a lot because, you know, it's it's like they're, they're almost the opposite of your everyday cyclists as well. And, and I was very interested in your paper on um, on safety gear. And talking about how, you know, the, 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 what that means to people, both in terms of feeling, putting them off cycling, but also feel, making it seem like a really expensive, difficult, barrierful sport. And I guess, I guess there's kind of those, 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 those stigmas at the other end of the, you know, on the one hand, you've got the po- poverty stigma, but those stigmas at the other side mm. also seem to be quite interesting too. Like, you know, how do you overcome the stigma of, for example, hipsterism, you know, or, <laughs> yes. or the, or the stigma of, 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 you know, vegan eco warrior. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, and it, it's kind of interesting that you can have all those sort of coexisting at the same time. And that, you know, although you'd think they would contradict each other, they'd still, yeah, they, they still yeah. exist and they still can be off-putting to people they can still lead to marginalization and so on and it is you with, with the it's interesting with the um sort of safety gear thing as well in that you can kind of clearly see how it relates to the environment and the particular kind of cycling environment we've got that is hostile that makes people you know feel they have to wear this gear but it's never enough you kind of get into this yeah. um escalation and some of the interviews that i did for cycling cultures very much sort of showed that that you know i've got this i've got fluorescent armbands i've got this I've got that and people sort of feeling they had to wear more and more high visibility gear but it was never enough you know you could never be sure that a motorist would see you and this kind of constant pressure to do that and also shaming when people when people don't wear the right clothing and so on it was it's really interesting and it seemed to have some kind of you know parallels the way in which all the groups get their dress and behavior policed and so on you know you're not wearing the right clothing you're um how can you be so irresponsible um which which is interesting i have a personal anecdote which is (laughs) that i was cycling through central london and somebody started talking to me and wanted to harangue me about my shoes I was wearing the wrong shoes and I was probably going to lose my leg because it was so dangerous. Oh my God, <laughs> this, like just a just, stranger. Yeah, incredible, I know. Um, who incidentally was not wearing a helmet, so we then had a discussion about risk compensation and whether that <laughs> applied to shoes as well as to, to, to headgear. So there you go. But it's the same as like, you know, um, a young black teenager shouldn't wear a hoodie if he doesn't want to be um, thought of as a criminal or a young girl or a girl shouldn't wear a short skirt if she's walking around late at night because, you know, you're asked, you know, if, if she doesn't want to be raped, there's a kind of really interesting well horrible culture isn't there of 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 like risk risk versus oh it's your own faults that that's that you can't win on like you can never win yeah (laughs) i i you know i i I remember trying to get a trying to get a a fluorescent coat and being so so ashamed in the shop because they basically said oh you know I'm, i'm you know i'm size 16 and i was too fat for their women's coats and so the only thing they had was this enormous men's coat that looked terrible on me and it was yeah. just like and i bought it because i was so embarrassed and when i should have just gone sod it i'm going on the internet and finding something that fits my <laughs> shape you know and, and it, yeah. it's like all of that stuff is really you know i i you know again cycling should i know cycling should feel like fun i started cycling to work because i you know because i loved it and it made me feel good and i stopped because it just made me feel Ugh. Yeah, no, that's that's I know that's terrible, but it's it's too too often a yeah a common experience. And there's this the the sort of clothing thing 
as well is you know because people when when you know if someone's injured or killed often it's the way it's reported who was not wearing a helmet who was wearing dark clothing and so on and these things become very much blaming facts and people internalize you know i must i mustn't do that i must do this and even though yeah as you say you can't win yeah yeah, so in terms of um, equity in cycling and getting get and helping, you know, getting more people to ride from diverse communities, diverse backgrounds, what do you think um, organisations and and decision makers should be looking at? I mean, apart from thinking about it in the first place. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, I've got actually. I should I should make reference to this. I've been. I mean, I suppose the, the first thing really is to think about cycling as being a, a system, as something that's provided. I think that's really fundamental. I think that's that, that, that sort of shift in seeing it. Traditionally, it's been seen as something that, you know, individuals do. And as, as we got into the 1990s, it became something that, you know, individuals do. It's a good thing. People should cycle. It's mm. healthy. It's environmental. It's all this. You know, people should cycle. And really... Um, detracting attention away from the fact that you need to provide the conditions but pr- infrastructural but also legal cultural policy mm. and so on you need to provide the conditions for people to cycle you need to provide a cycling system you know you can't expect people to get the bus if there are no buses but yet yeah. most of the country effectively the cycling system is like that there is no yeah. good infrastructure there is no support you might you'll probably be harassed if you cycle that kind of thing mm. so really turning it around and saying you know how do we provide an equitable cycling system so there are different um within that you know as well as providing good quality infrastructure providing infrastructure that goes to the places that different people want to go to and we're at such an early stage in this country as well we're just Mm. building stuff is seen as good is seen as good but you know are you only building good routes that go to um, city center um, jobs you know are you building routes that go to shops that go to schools and so on so thinking about the different destinations that men women older people um, children and so on have and making sure that you build for those destinations um, thinking about the um, ca- capabilities that people have. So one thing that we've often done in this country is we've built the, well, sort of built, We've there's a fast direct route, you know, down the A road mm. for the um, young men. And then there's a wiggly route going through a muddy field for the women <laughs> and the old people. And that's the yes. dual networks, right? Yeah, but yeah. The problem with that, it's seen as being appropriate for the women and the older people because they're supposedly, you know, more risk averse or less risk tolerant. But um, some of the work that I've been doing with colleagues has looked at um, distance decay in terms of, you know, as you lengthen a route, then um, people are proportionally less likely to cycle it. Um, And it's different for different people, but you can do curves across a population. And the interesting thing is that for women and older people, those curves are sharper. So as you increase distance, cycling among women and older people will decline more sharply than cycling among young men. So the very last thing you want to do is put those people on a detour because that's you know they're they're less tolerant of longer distances so they exactly need the direct route so when you're thinking of building for a diverse population then yeah the people the the underrepresented demographic need a really direct route and we don't you know that still doesn't seem to have sort of filtered through that yeah we can you know we we acknowledge that women and older people want a a protect more you know particularly keen on protected routes but that hasn't really filtered through that they also have more need of direct routes um and stuff around stuff around obstacles of course physical obstacles um so many places where it's assumed that cyclists can dismount carry their bikes um carry (laughs) their bikes up a flight of stairs all, all this kind of stuff and it's um there's some really good work done 
done by some um, disabled cyclist organisations that, you know, just point out that we actually can't do this. This is impossible for us. And that, you know, it's, it's a um, equality legislation issue because you've built a route that people um, with various disabilities absolutely can't use, a cycle route that they can't use. <laughs> yeah. And my final question for everyday cyclists, I mean, I think about it in terms of, you know, this is, you know, I had a tin can lobbed at my head and apparently there's a, there's a group of lads who go around lobbing tin cans at people when they're cycling and what, women and watch them bounce off their helmets. And I was thinking I should have reported that to the police and I didn't. Mm. But are there things that we, we could be doing to help the culture? I mean, obviously getting involved in the near miss projects and um, doing the one day diaries is a useful thing, but, but do you have any advice for people who think, well, I don't have any power what can I do? I mean, in some areas now, you can report. There are, um, I think now in, in Avon and Somerset as well, you can report um, near misses and things like that um, to the police in a less, you, I mean, that that you probably, I mean, that is a, <laughs> it is an assault, isn't it? But other yeah. things are more like near misses, you can report. Um, you can report the police online and it's a bit of an easier process than having to go into to a station and so on. Um, I do think reporting things is important. I mean, my, I'm, you know, myself, I have not always done that, but it is, you know, if things are reported, they count and they can be, you know, they, they can be useful, not just in the individual case, but, but because a lot of people are reporting it. I mean, mm. I think, I think people are in the cycling community are doing a lot of good stuff i think the um you know me getting involved and doing research in this area is partly inspired by some of the work that some of the people were doing um you know bloggers and campaigners writing about these issues and and making some of the same sort of sociological points as well which i think is is really interesting that people were, were sort of doing transport sociology on cycling and i think you can really see that things have been changing obviously not as much as they need to change but mm. for example in in London um, where a lot of activity has been concentrated I think we've really seen quite a substantial change and it's you know it could, could still stop but for example we've seen a 27 fold increase in spending on cycling and okay that's from a very low base but 27 fold increase and what's really interesting is that um, Transport for London survey people on their attitudes towards cycling and they do this every year and every um, year recently the the, the proportion of people saying more should be spent on cycling has increased just at the same time as they are actually spending more in the first place. So oh, I think, cool. yeah, it's really, it's, it's really good. And you can see now that there is, um, in London, there is strong support for spending more money on cycling and it's substantially outnumbering the people who are saying that less should be spent on cycling. So you can, you know, you can see that in a sense, getting that money spent has justified um, support for cycling. So I think it is really important. Cool. And I guess people can also talk to their councillors, talk to their MPs and stuff like that and just do that usual lobby. Yes. Oh, councillors, actually, I would say councillors are really important, I think, because councillors often get to hear, you know, they get complaints about often, you know, dog mess and litter um, and so on. And they get to, you know, they get to hear the same thing. <laughs> people jumping red lights yes. and, and yeah. yeah, yeah, same thing from the same very small amount of people. And I think if, if you get, you know, people speak to their councillors and councillors understand that the people who vote for them the people who live in their area do cycle or want to cycle and want better cycling conditions I think that is really powerful and I think often you know just a few people talking to a councillor can help um, change their mind help them understand what needs to happen so I think I think talking to councillors is is yeah very important and I think it was interesting that in the um, 
recent elections in London, you have the London Cycling Campaign was, uh, you know, getting people to try and con- trying to get people to contact their ward councillors and candidates and so on, and to try and say, you know, this is what we want to happen because, yeah, I think they, I think talking to councillors is is definitely a good thing to do. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This is really fascinating. I could talk to you for hours. Um, but if people want to find out more about your work, um, wh- where, where do they where do they come across? Um, oh, I have a website at rachelaldred.org, so they can just have a look there. Excellent. That's got tons of really good links. It's got links to Rachel's uh, publications. It's got links to uh, reading that you can do. And I love your Twitter. Uh, Rachel tweets at Rachel at Rachel Aldred. And I love your Twitter just for linking people to papers and useful information and stuff that you see elsewhere. That's really good fun. So thank Thank you. Excellent. And um, thank you very much for your time. I'll put all the links to Rachel's stuff on my blog, prowomenscycling.com. And thank you for listening. And thank you very much for your time.